The following content contains some explicit language that might not be suitable for children or Mormons. It's Wednesday, January 31st, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. South Carolina Representative Trey Gowdy is not seeking re-election. Now there's a shot of confidence to discredited nincompoop Devin Nunes, his memo leak strategy. His wingman is flying the coop. As a congressman, Gowdy was a really good state prosecutor. You know, I, I sense that he actually knew where the truth was, and you could tell this because he would skirt around it in clever ways. Like, if you looked at his official Benghazi report, it did actually officially clear Hillary Rodham Clinton, but, you know, he also gave the platform to his fellow Republicans who claim that the report which cleared her didn't clear her. Fine. That's how he played that game. I get the sense, however, that unlike Gowdy, the discredited nincompoop Nunez, he doesn't really know where the facts are. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. I could be giving Gowdy the benefit of the doubt or improperly slamming discredited nincompoop Devin Nunez. So Trey Gowdy has decided to spend more time with his family or other members of House Slytherin. But you know, this isn't the first Republican to bow out of congressional elections. It is the 34th, by my count, who won't be seeking re-election. And we could say Trey Gowdy is Audi. I suppose we could also say that Idaho's Raul Labrador could take no more. He's out the door. Diane Black won't be coming back. Dave Trott, certainly not. Ed Royce also made that choice. Todd Rokita, about out of this political theater. Charlie Dent seems spent. Luke Messer, he's an honest self-assessor. And like Dave Richard, thought it better to desert. Lynn Jenkins, she looks forward to collecting some pensions. Jim Duncan, his hopes and chances sunken, made the same choice as Bob Goodlatte and said, the hell with that. Were they pushed? Did they jump? Mere semantics, especially when it comes to Jim DeSantis. Joe Barton, departing, along with fellow Texan Lamar Smith. Ted Poe, just no. Like Jed Hensarling, one-time GOP darling, Steve Pierce switch gears. Rodney Freulingheisen, he's auto-downsizing. Save your letters. That's still the same position he'd be espousing if you pronounce his name Freulinghausen. Blake Fahrenholt, his re-election poorly polled. Innocent of harassment, voters weren't sold. South Dakota's Christy Noam, she's also in this poem. And finally, Indiana's Chris Crofton Tot, new to shit or get off the pot. Okay, I'm lying. There is no Chris Crofton Tot. But if there were, he'd be trailing his Democratic opponent in a district that went to Trump by 16. On the show today, a spiel worth listening to about a worthless State of the Union address. But first, now this is really important news and substantive news. The Koreans used the phrase, he's fallen off his horse. The man who was to be the ambassador of South Korea, it was reported, is not to be. And the why... Well, the answer to that is something of a uh, slap in the face or, as Fred Kaplan says, a punch in the nose.
The biggest story from yesterday had nothing to do with a speech and all the applause that was self-generated at times. It was the fact that the United States ambassador to South Korea, A, still does not exist, and B, was maybe going to be an academic named Victor Cha, but according to Washington Post reports and others, he did not sign off on a U.S. strategy called the bloody nose. And then... On the day of President Trump's speech, he actually wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, giving North Korea a bloody nose carries a huge risk to Americans. Joining me now is Fred Kaplan. He writes the War Columns story for Slate, and he's the author of Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. Fred, hi. Hello. All right. So the bloody nose, just the phrase itself tells you something about the wisdom of it, but what is the idea militarily of the bloody nose? Well, the idea is North Korea is about to do something really bad, and we just kind of punch them, you know, do something destructive, but just in a limited way to kind of knock them off their socks and let them know that if they keep doing this, we're really going to let them have it. Right, so, but, but, but not cyber and not sanction. Well, who an knows what war. it is? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, this is not a classical military term. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right, it's not a pincer movement? <laughs> you know, there are a few things about this, Mike. One, the, the bloody nose thing. Let's say that Mike Tyson comes into your office and just hauls off and punches you in the face. Right. Now, you don't know if that's it, he's just warning you about something, or whether he's about to kill you. And let's say you had an electrical rod right behind you, and maybe you'd punch him one like that. You don't, you don't know what the hell he's doing. And, and, and a punch in the nose with, say, nuclear weapons or against nuclear targets, that could destroy command control. You don't know what to do. You assume the worst. Right. Kablooey. I've never heard of a military action where the entire point of the action was entirely dependent on the recipient of the action correctly sussing out the intentions of the actor. Oh, yeah. No, that, that's actually been in the books for a long time. And the way you phrase it correctly assesses the, the true wisdom of this. This is what a bunch of people in the White House and the Pentagon thought that they would be doing in in Vietnam, you can read it in memos in, in the now famous Pentagon Papers, uh, or newly famous Pentagon Papers, yeah. where they say they talk about orchestrating an attack and sending a signal with force and hitting them hard, but not too hard. I mean, the thing about Cha, and, and you called him an academic, he is an academic, but he was also George W. Bush's top advisor on North Korean affairs in the National Security Council. Uh, he was in the NSC staff during the Bush administration. He took part in the six parties talks with the six countries in North Korea. In other words, this was the, the reason why this is such a big deal is that this was going to be finally a guy in the Trump administration dealing with Korea who actually knows something about Asian politics, has had experience in dealing with North Koreans knows the issues, commands them, he's immersed in them. Right now, Mike, we got nobody like that. There's, there's not only not a, uh, an ambassador to South Korea, there's not an assistant secretary of state or defense for East Asian affairs. Right. There's not an assistant secretary of state or defense for political military affairs. You know, Mattis, smart guy, never been deployed to Asia. Tillerson never been to Asia, and McMaster not only never been involved in Asia, but some of his remarks lately about deterrence 
Make me wonder if he really needs to go back to the books. He's got it completely wrong. Yeah. So it would seem that on the Korean Peninsula might be important to have one, two, or all of these positions filled. What's yeah, the practical fact? So. You'd think so. Yeah. So what, what seriously is the effect without it? What really happens? That a general decides policy? Or Trump decides policy. That's even worse. You know, McMaster has said publicly that Kim Jong-un is not susceptible to classic deterrence theory. And the evidence of this is that he treats his own people so horribly. Mm -hmm. He kills people that he distrusts all around him, including relatives. Well, you know, in my book, all he's doing all that for self-preservation. Yeah. And the deterrence theory that I've read about tells me that a guy like that is extremely susceptible to deterrence theory. In other words, you come after me, I'm coming after you at the things that you most value, including your life. Right. He's eminently deterrable. Now, and I'd put out there that Stalin did those things too, and the Soviet Union was deterred, and I, you know, Mao, and there's a bunch of guys who were deterred. The other thing is, see, Chop, he wrote this article in the Washington Post, as you say. Now, he'd already been dismissed before he wrote it. And there's this little line where he says, during the brief time when I was under consideration for an administration position, and that was the first that we've heard that he's no longer under consideration, by the way. So he said that the arguments that he raised, and they're eminently sensible, it was, look, if you're saying that he's too irrational to be deterred from, say, nuking Los Angeles, then it doesn't make sense to say that he's rational enough to be deterred and we knock him off his block for a minute. And then he says, oh, I see where the next step is coming, so I'm not going to strike back. You can't have it both ways. If, if, he, if he's too irrational to be subject to the common sense deterrence, then he's, he's not going to be rational enough to think three steps ahead and not respond to getting whacked himself. You know, and then again, let's put it, Cha is not a dove. Yeah. In, in, the, in the spectrum of opinion, Cha would be considered a moderate hawk. In this op-ed, he talks about the need to continue to ratchet up sanctions against North Korea, to surround them with, with military assets from all sides, all countries, put in more conventional forces, put in missile defenses. You know, he's not talking about Shangri-La and let's talk unity and how much oil supplies do you need North Korea to back off. No, he's a realist. Right. So one operation, one military operation that the Hawks always cite is um, the Israeli 1981 bombing of the Iraqi nuclear reactor. Why is that similar to a bloody nose and why isn't that a good example? Well, that was a good example of a bloody nose, but also it was effective. Iraq had one reactor. It was out there. You could blow it up with a few bombs and that was it. Everybody's learned lessons from Maserat. North Korea has most of their nuclear facilities and materials buried underground, often on the other side of a mountain. There is no reliable way to say, yep, I got it. It's destroyed. And they've dispersed these resources. It's not all in one place. (laughs) So, yeah, it, it would take a lot, a lot of planes and flying over a period of many, many days 
and doing bomb damage assessment and striking again to have the same kind of effect that the attack on the Osirak plant wanted. And, and in the meantime, you know, it's not just nuclear. North Korea has a lot of artillery rockets right on the border with South Korea. Well, yeah. <laughs> Some of them lo- loaded with chemical weapons. And, you know, Seoul, the capital of South of Korea, is only 35 miles from the border. We're talking about a city of 10 million people. You could kill millions of people without even taking out the nuclear stuff. Not to mention Americans in South Korea, Americans in Japan. And then, you know what, if nuclear weapons get involved, let's say even we end up lobbing, you know, a dozen nuclear weapons. You know, our smallest nuclear weapons have about 10 times the explosive power as the bomb that hit Hiroshima. There's blast, there's smoke, there's fire, there's radioactive fallout. Mm-hmm. It'll spread. It'll spread to Japan. It sp- could spread to Europe. And when you get into things like nuclear winter, which a lot of people have forgotten about, it could spread worldwide. A couple of dozen nuclear weapons, even of that size, could kill tens of millions of people, maybe even more than that, globally. I don't think even the Pentagon in their calculations of fatalities from a war uh, take into account the effects of nuclear winter. So the fact, here's the thing, the fact, it's not entirely clear why Cha was dismissed. I've been trying to find this out. He's not returning calls. It could be that, yeah, he recited all these arguments that he said he recited in the op-ed piece. And Trump said, I don't want anybody who doesn't go along with my philosophy. Or uh, maybe he just didn't want anybody who disagreed with him, period. Maybe he saw signs of incipient disloyalty. It's not a good sign because it's unclear where Trump is going with this. If if, if, if what McMaster and, and Trump have said is true, that... They will not negotiate with North Korea at all until North Korea first gets rid of its nuclear stuff. That's not going to happen. That is all that North Korea has going for it. Yeah. Look at the, uh, look at the, li- look at the list of people who've given up their nuclear weapons. Yeah, that's right. Look at They're the dead. people who haven't. Right. They're dead now. Saddam Hussein, he, was, you know, he, got, he had to get rid of it. He's gone. Yeah. Muammar Gaddafi turned over his nuclear stuff. He's gone. Yeah. Iran gets rid of its nuclear stuff. And now Trump is talking about pulling out of the agreement. So why should Kim Jong-un or anybody in the world take any such offer seriously? And then second, you know, where, if, if, he's not, if that is the precondition and if North Korea uh, doesn't waver, where is Trump going with this? I've, I've talked with people who are very close followers of Asia who say that at least right now there are no preparations in the works for a a punch in the nose or anything else. In other words, there is no evacuation plans being drawn up. There's, you know, you you don't see people bringing in uh, supplies and reinforcements for a possible land battle. There are things that you would have to do that, in fact, would take maybe months to to set in place. Mm -hmm. And none of these is being done now. So is Trump... Is he actually want to go to war? Does he think that this, uh, you know, this goes back to to Nixon's madman theory during Vietnam, where he told Kissinger to go to the Paris peace talks, tell the North Vietnamese that Nixon's crazy. 
he's a madman. He's so obsessed with communism, he might, you know, drop a nuclear weapon on you guys. And he said, you know, Ho Chi Minh will be at the peace table within 24 hours. Well, he wasn't. They didn't take it seriously. Trump maybe makes a more convincing case of being crazy than Nixon was. But there's no evidence that Kim Jong-un or anybody is even prone to taking this seriously. So if it is a bluff, and his bluff is called, and we don't have any negotiations in the works, and in fact we don't have anybody in the whole U.S. government with any experience at dealing with North Korea negotiations, or even any expertise in the region, much less in the country, then what is he going to do? Yeah. Here's why it is, um, along with what you laid out, why it's very troubling to me. Because I always thought that this talk of a punch in the nose was irresponsible talk. Mm -hmm. But let's say there was a presidency who wanted to act tough and thought there was great value in signaling through tough talk. You could make the case that you would at least talk about a punch in the nose. You could make the case that you would not want to take it off the table and maybe emphasize that it's on the table, but you would never really want to do it. It would only be in the realm of talk. This, a decision that took place in a private room to deny a qualified professional a job because he wouldn't sign off on the punch in the nose theory tells me that maybe they actually believe this is a good idea. It's not just signaling. To be a little bit charitable, a little bit, maybe they think that it's important to keep up the pretense that we might really do that in order to get the North Koreans to back down. And if Cha is on the record as saying not a good idea, then that reduces the credibility by the way, he, he wasn't on the record as saying this publicly but, but until he was dismissed. But, but still, and again, we don't know if it's because he disagreed with that view or because he just was looking like he might not be a loyal guy. You know, I know of some cases where someone went in for a, an interview in the White House. Because, you know, all these, you know, 70 or 80 unfilled positions in Second and, tier, uh, second and third tier positions in the State Department and the Pentagon, they, they have to be nominated by the president. So they went in for the interview, and one of the questions that was asked was, uh, did you vote for Trump in the election? Yeah. And for some of these people, they said, well, no. And that was it. It's all over. Now, Cha might very well have voted for Trump, or maybe he didn't vote. Yeah, as I say, he was in George W. Bush's administration. He was not in Barack Obama's administration. A lot of these guys, you know, in the national security profession, they they work both sides. They're not political animals, but that's not the way Trump sees it. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's disturbing on several levels. It does strike me that if you were to sign off on a strategy as ill-advised as a bloody nose, what you would want is an ambassador and undersecretaries of state and defense for those areas, because you would have to communicate to North Korea exactly what the intent of this strike is. The idea of the bloody nose is communication by bomb. You need the people in place to tell them what we meant by this bombing. What they meant and what we mean. But, you know, you get some kind, you know, Tillerson, he had a conversation going on. We don't know the details, but he had a back channel conversation going on with North Korea and South Korea, talking about some ways that we might get beyond this impasse. And he made the mistake of saying this publicly. 
and Trump tweeted, you'll recall, don't waste your time, Rex. No point dealing with these people. He just undercut him. After this thing with Cha, it'd be hard for me to imagine anybody who's really expert in Asian affairs who would want this position without some assurances. Because they're looking around. Victor Cha is a preeminent guy. He is well-respected on all sides. And if they see that this is how they treated Victor Cha, how are they going to treat me? Fred Kaplan writes the War Stories column for Slate. And he is author of, oh, I think I'll plug your earliest book. It's on the point, The Wizards of Armageddon, which is exactly about the small group of men who devised and plan nuclear war. Thank you, Fred. Thank you. On Hit Parade, Chris Malamfi takes you on a fascinating journey through pop chart history, exploring the people and the politics behind the songs you hear on the radio. Remember the radio? Does anybody remember laughter? Listen to Hit Parade's latest show about the most improbable chart toppers of all time. Who are the record executives and musicians who saw their throwaway wacky songs become number one hits? Check out Hit Parade everywhere you download podcasts. And now the spiel. The State of the Union was a truly useless exercise. And it's not because I don't like the president or because the president is inept or doesn't make good speeches or lies, though true, 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 true. It's because what the State of the Union is supposed to be, and I'm not even talking about the most high-minded aspirations for the State of the Union, but at the very bottom. What it is, is somewhat of a roadmap that tells you where the president wants the country to go. Sometimes it really lays out concrete policy. Sometimes it just hints at the general direction. But with this president, who will change his mind tomorrow, who will contradict himself, who doesn't even know what they load in the teleprompter and then will tweet something 180 degrees from that, why bother? Why bother paying attention? Why especially bother paying so much attention to a mere piece of talking? We know who the real Trump is. Come on, let's not pretend that this speech was an indication of something that it wasn't. Of course, I guess the papers have to do this. New York Times headline, Trump's first State of the Union address, a call for unity that wasn't always heard that way. It's the fault of the listener, not the speaker that his obviously unifying words were not taken at face value. Unifying words like the assertion that many of our most vicious gang members originally came to our country under the Dreamer program as unaccompanied minors. The stats show approximately 0.001% of the Dreamers are gang members. Washington Post said Trump seemed normal for a night, can it last? Stop. Before I got to the end of the sentence, I had dismissed it. You should too. Why even bother asking? One CNN pundit said, where is the talk of opioids? Very little talk of opioids. Does it matter? Because that's all he gave us was talk of opioids. He talked and talked about opioids. He had a commission. Chris Christie ran the commission. Said they should use Medicaid to fight opioid addiction. They didn't act on that declared a national health emergency that gave, I think, $50,000 to opioid use. They're words. They don't mean anything. And also, he doesn't even say the words right. This guy can't even pronounce the word scourge. Scourge, a plague. You know what a scourge is, right? He's been making the same mistake his entire administration. Here he is mispronouncing scourge before the UN in September. The scourge of our planet today is a small group of rogue regimes 
that violate every principle on which the United Nations is based. Okay, so it's on the record. He can't pronounce scourge, scourge. This was him two weeks ago in the Oval Office during a signing ceremony. Fentanyl, which is our new big scourge. It's uh, disgraceful what's happening, coming from different countries, including, frankly, China. So knowing that the guy can't pronounce scourge, what did they load up into the teleprompter yesterday? Scourge. We must get much tougher on drug dealers and pushers if we are going to succeed in stopping this scourge. Scourge is his nuclear. If he and George W. Bush got together, they could talk about the nuclear scourge. (laughs) The best piece of criticism that I saw was a video put together by Vice. Washington Post also had an angle on this. It's how Trump loves to clap at himself. So he says something and then provides the most raucous applause in the chamber. And the same great American flag. And that's him. That's his loud clapping in front of the mic over the American flag. He not only does this about statements that other people should or probably shouldn't applaud at, he does this when he introduces a member of the gallery and uh, he will be the one sustaining the applause, sometimes, in fact, driving the applause over a cliff. So I investigated, did other presidents do this? None of them were so megalomaniacal as to clap at their own insipid statements. Obama actually got away from packing the gallery with uh, characters, though he touched on that a little bit. Here he was in 2013, nodding to his wife and his vice president's wife. And I want to thank my wife, Michelle, and Dr. Jill Biden for their continued dedication to serving our military families as well as they have served us. Thank you, honey. Thank you, Jill. Obama doesn't clap. He issues no clapping. Going back further, Reagan, of course, he didn't clap at himself. He knows how to act. Now, listen to how uncomfortable George H.W. Bush is. In this clip, he talks about a bipartisan collection of governors up there in the gallery. In fact, up there is the man who would unseat him, Bill Clinton. And I guess what's notable in this clip, which, of course, he doesn't clap for, but he doesn't even know that the crowd's going to clap. The crowd pushes him to applause, and he just kind of accepts it. whom are very key. And these discussions, these deliberations are with us here tonight. By the Bill Clinton came the closest to doing what Trump does. He clapped. He didn't clap at himself for his own statements, but he would sometimes introduce someone and then clap. This is honoring uh, two family members of a congressman who just died. We are grateful for his service and honored that his mother, Lily Tejeda, and his sister, Mary Alice, have come from Texas to be with us here tonight. And we welcome you. Thank you. Now, you'll hear there, you'll hear at the end, you heard that extra amplified clapping. I couldn't be sure it was Clinton because... This was the 1997 State of the Union, but it's positively ancient in terms of production values. There weren't two or three cameras. There's one camera, and it swung from the president, and it swung up to the gallery and got Representative Tejada's sister, and then the same camera swung back. So we couldn't really see if Bill Clinton was doing the clapping. But what we could hear and what we saw in different clips is he would clap, but he would end his clapping before the crowd 
ended the clapping. He didn't push the crowd to clap when they didn't want to clap. He knows when to stop. He waits for the crowd. He even kind of nods and gives a gesture that says, all right, let's get going because the point of a State of the Union is an applause. Well, for him or a normal president, you don't give the State of the Union just to get applause. Here is George W. Bush, also a non-applauder, into the microphone or anywhere else that I could see. Now, I found this interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, with grateful hearts, we honor freedom's defenders and our military families, represented here this evening by Sergeant Norwood's mom and dad, Janet and Bill Norwood. Now, I timed the applause. We're not going to play it all because it lasts so very long. It lasts a minute and 40 seconds. Now, contrast this. Remember last year's speech? It wasn't a State of the Union. It was uh, the, the president's first speech is said to be before the joint session of Congress. He was talking about the killed in action Navy SEAL Ryan Owens, who Trump said was looking down and possibly smiling because he broke a record for how much applause he got. And that, you know, that seemed to comfort the widow to some extent. So I said, fine. Three points. Looking back at all this tape. A, it didn't break the record. What I just played you about Sergeant Norwood's mom and dad, that went on five seconds longer, a minute 40 to a minute 35. Two, I hadn't thought of this until I watched the tape, but how must the Norwoods or anyone else in that position have felt to have Trump say, well, your sacrifice, uh, your current sacrifice, you grieving family member of the most recent killed in action, you set the record. You're the most sympathetic. How must they have felt? And lastly, The applause wanted to end. The people in the chamber were done clapping, but Trump wasn't. It was all him thundering into that mic. The people around Sergeant Ryan's widow all stopped clapping. Sergeant Ryan's widow was crying. At one point she was clapping. She had stopped clapping. But there was Trump beating his hands together, a wind-up monkey who'd lost his symbols. This bipartisan, Washington Post headline, speech of unity, New York Times headline, that offered a tantalizing promise of what could have been, Washington Post assertion, was nothing of the sort. All it was, was just another exercise in cacophonous self-flagellation amplified to uncomfortable levels. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who's not an I, he's a nay. Just senior producer, Wilson, comma, Mary, gives continuing on the raspberry. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of the podcasts of Slate, thinks that along this path lies not his fate. The gist, we will be missed. Although we'll also be here tomorrow and the next day. So it's all hypothetical. Oopuru, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>